Welcome to Truth 30 with Joey Dumont, a podcast that debates our society's most politically compelling topics through the lens of slow journalism. Each show is investigated with a focus on narrative as well as discovery. We believe that the complexity of our culture today cannot be crammed into six-minute television segments or snippets and memes on social media where ideology and entertainment has overtaken the creed of historical reporting. On the program, you'll hear the opinions of subject matter experts to help you separate the signal from the noise. Our collective goal is to better understand one another, not win a battle. After watching, you'll be reminded that a proper debate is not about victory, but that of inquiry, education, and viewpoint diversity. So tune in and talk amongst yourselves. You may even learn a thing or two. Today on True 30, I'm interviewing Santa Rosa's police chief, John Cregan. Over the past year, I've interviewed numerous experts and advocates on the topic of defund the police. I've talked to local beat cops and politicians here in San Francisco. I've interviewed folks on the progressive side at the DNC in Sacramento. I've even talked to folks who want to abolish the police department entirely. And on today's show, we talk about the commonalities specific to remedies by both social progressives and conservatives alike. We also talk about the millions of dollars in new funding that's being offered up. And we talk about how these wonderful advocates have pushed legislators and lobbyists to actually make real change in our policing that affects everyone nationwide. I hope you enjoy the show. Well, there's our legal warning, Captain. So uh, you're on camera and I appreciate you coming today. And so I guess we can start with the fact that you're Captain, but you are as of right now uh, up as an interim chief starting in May. And, yeah, uh, so on May 2nd, we have, um, we've had a tremendous chief, Chief Ray Navarro, who served with the city of Santa Rosa for 30 years, and he'll be retiring on May 2nd, and I'll be stepping into the role of our interim chief of police for the city of Santa Rosa, and then be competing in a national recruitment process for the permanent position, which I hope to be able to attain and be able to lead the great men and women here at Santa Rosa Police Department. Well, congratulations. That's, uh, that's fantastic news, and I wish you luck on that. So I also want to set the table here for the listeners who have yet to be part of this series of conversations. I've had about three podcasts on defund the police specifically. Um, in earlier podcasts, we kind of dove into the narrative and how flawed it was. I interviewed one of your former lieutenants, uh, Lieutenant John Snetzinger, and he, to, to be clear and to be concise, he's a buddy of mine from high school. Uh, we have a lot of mutual respect for one another, and it was a really cool hour and a half because he filled me in not only as a beat officer, but as a leader, he was the Lieutenant when he retired after 27 years. And so it really taught me a lot specifically on the differences between the narrative out there in the press and then what's actually happening on the ground. And so I know that you did witness a couple of these podcasts. I have interviewed two or three young men uh, on camera who identify as social Democrats, progressives, um, one young man named Zachary Kim, who I have a lot of respect for, but he said a lot of things on the podcast that maybe we can kind of start off with, some of which was that policing in general has origins of oppression and slavery, and there's a lot of young men and women that believe this narrative, and they think that the whole police department, the whole organization itself, the judicial system itself needs to be raised to the ground and started over and that community leaders need to be in charge of the police. And so I know you heard some of this interview. Um, I wanted to get your take on that just because before I chime in on my opinion, 
you're, you're someone on the ground. What is it that I think is most bothersome as someone who's been on the street and I'm dealing with this on a day-to-day issue when you hear things like that from our young men and women? Well, I mean, I guess the most important thing is for first, like for police officers like myself to acknowledge that there have been wrongs in the history of policing and there have been injustices that have played out across the country. But also it, it also is so important to look at like the each individual police department. And it's so difficult as a police officer here in the San Francisco Bay Area and to be judged on the actions of a police officer in Mississippi uh, and be able to say that that's a direct parallel to what's happening here in the San Francisco Bay Area. And and we do have some issues here, even my own police department, mistakes that have been made. But it's just so important to look at, like, where are we the level of policing that we are today? And I, I went to school in Florida and took it for criminal justice. And, and that was back in the 90s uh, that I was in college. And be able to see, like, even like in Florida and some of those southern law enforcement agencies, what a different standard we have from here, from the state of California. And state of California, we have the police officers, uh, uh, like an oversight for the whole state of California called POST, which looks at that and sets these mandated trainings. And it's just so important for the, uh, people to understand the level of training and expertise that California law enforcement officers have. And then so many agencies like Santa Rosa that go above and beyond in building in some of the trainings on de-escalation and procedural justice and implicit bias. And to be able to really say like, we want the best of the best going out into our community. And I think sometimes some of the young people like the young men interviewed on your podcast just need to take the time to kind of get out of their own little lens and say like, let me go do a ride along maybe with the police department or come and talk to and understand like what some of the things are going off across our country, but also for police officers to do the same thing, to be able to say, you know what, what things do we need to change in law enforcement, even here in the San Francisco Bay area, what are some of the changes? And I think post George Floyd, we've seen some movement, uh, especially here in California, but even across the nation about saying, hey, now is the time to reimagine some of the things we're doing in police work. And where I think we're seeing some of the greatest movement in that is some of like reimagining the police response to those in a mental health crisis. And that's something I'm very passionate about. And I still think that we can go a long way. But it, I think it's and it's it's actually been kind of a cool experience for me that it's a time that even some of the more left uh, side, like leaning activists and then the police department, like we're coming together, like both with a shared vision about what we can do with reimagining those. So it's been kind of actually a cool experience of sometimes we always haven't been on the same side, especially ideologically. But this is the time that we're we're both 100 percent in agreement about looking for some of these mental health reforms that we can do in law enforcement. And really, it comes down to most importantly of sending what is the right resource to send to those in crisis at that moment? And sending an armed police officer with, frankly, not a whole lot of training and expertise in mental illness and mental health cases right. uh, isn't necessarily the right solution. And it's not the right solution for the police officer. And it's certainly not the right solution for the community member who's in crisis. It's a great point. And, and to kind of just give credit where credit is due is Zachary. He's a good young man, uh, social worker, master's degree and uh, public policy, and he's gonna do some great things. I, I'm confident about that. What I think that was really neat for me to see was that as I interviewed him and as I interviewed Lieutenant Snetzinger, a lot of the same things they brought up, and I brought this up to him later on af- off camera, because he said, you know what we need to do is we need to involve community workers. We need to have more social workers. We need to have more de-escalation training. We need to have more mental health aspects and PTSD training for the officers, and then a much bigger blanket for healthcare within the cities. 
And I was like, wow, dude, you know, the funny thing is, is that that's exactly the same thing Lieutenant Snetzinger said in my interview. And, and what Lieutenant said to me, which was, it still rings loud, was that most major cities have one cheap solution for everything, and that's the police department. He said, so if there's someone throwing rocks at cars, we call the police department. If someone's having a mental breakdown, we call the police department. And he said, so yeah, we should probably call the ones who's throwing stones at cars. That seems like a good idea. But for someone who's having a psychotic break, and by the way, a lot of these are repeat customers. That's the one thing I know from interviewing other police officers here in San Francisco as well, is that they know these folks a lot of times and there's nothing they can do. And as a peace officer who signed up to actually help their community, it's very frustrating to know that they don't have enough beds or they don't have enough mental health services, or by the way, they shouldn't even be there as an officer. So those are the kind of things that I think were neat for me as far as the jail. Um, and that is a lot of what we can talk about today, specific to one of your proposals, um, which we'll, we'll go through here. I also want to set the table in the sense that I learned through my homework that there's a million uniformed police officers throughout the United States. There's about 18,000 police departments. And what John mentioned, uh, Lieutenant Snetzinger mentioned, in Santa Rosa, you guys have about a 2% black, black population. So he didn't want to comment much like you. He said the same thing. We know that there's issues around race. We know there's issues around um, some of the, you know, the George Floyd uh, disaster. That was one of those things where everyone, I think, kind of agrees. But what he did point out to me, which was very, uh, it was very poignant was that you guys had, and these numbers are off the top of my head, but 255,000 calls into dispatch in 2019, 137,000 of those were called to service and about 235 involved use of force. And so what he mentioned to me was that it's a 0.017% use of force within the department and that those numbers were very consistent over the last decade. And so what we kind of got into, and the reason that I'm so happy to have you on as the leader is that we we agreed that Santa Rosa is a beacon. It's a department, number one, it's about 200 people in size. Yeah, so we have 178 sworn officers and then another 70 civilian uh, uh, employees. So just, I believe, 256 total employees here at the organization. Okay, and as far as the standards go across the nation, how big, are you guys in the top 10%? Of departments or do you guys we say? certainly are so we're the largest agency uh north of san francisco to the oregon border that we have yeah but it, honestly you think like oh 178 sworn that's not that big but actually the the vast majority of agencies are only 20 to 30 sworn across the nation so yeah we, we are i believe we're uh 25th in the state of california uh okay. for the size so um not overwhelmingly large but large enough that there's a plenty happening in our in our community and our organization and to me it's it's kind of the perfect size city to be able to work in that i live here in the city of santa rosa i have two daughters here in high school my wife's a former teacher here in santa rosa so it's a place that you can raise your family in and but a lot of opportunities but it's not a place that faces like rampant and violent crime across the community where it really makes it difficult to raise a family. And so it's a place that I'm really proud to call home and, and really enjoy. Yeah, it's great. Obviously, I went to high school there and I love Santa Rosa as well. But it's, yeah. I, I broached that subject because it's it was news to me that you guys were one of the biggest departments in the country. And then because of that, what, what Lieutenant Snetzinger was saying was that it's very difficult to find budgets for de-escalation training and mental health and understanding community and then social workers and all the people and parts that actually have to kind of gel together. And I think that's kind of where I think we can move into 
a little bit about your, you recently did a presentation that I have here in front of me. Can you remind me who that presentation was to? It was a great opportunity. So I was able to go before the California Association of Chiefs of Police in Sacramento this year. And we presented to uh, several hundred uh, police officers on the really starting with the why. Why is it so important to be able yeah. to reimagine uh, the police response to those in a mental health crisis and then stepping them through? There's there's distinct models across the nation that I was able to uh, study and get to know. And then the biggest question for most chiefs is like, hey, we get it. It's important. But where are we going to get the funding for? Where are we going to get yeah. the staffing capacity for it? And now's the time across our nation not only across the nation, but here in California, that it is kind of a sexy topic with political leaders and they're willing to put the money in there. So now's the time to pounce, be able to build these teams. But one of the things that I'm looking at now is how do we keep this funding sustainable? This can't be for a flash in the pan for three to five years that we're building these mental health teams. Right. This needs to be for the future of California and a future across our, our nation that we make this, that we're gonna put sustainable funding to assist local municipalities and counties to be able to build these robust teams. And even here in the city of Santa Rosa, we've been the leader here in uh, the North Bay in creating this team, but I don't wanna see it just for the city of Santa Rosa. You should still have it in the same unincorporated areas of Sonoma County and the other cities that when you go into a mental health crisis or your loved one does, that you get the same level of care that you'll get in the city of Santa Rosa. And that's why we were excited to be able to present to the chiefs of police. We've already had several other cities come down here and visit our team and police departments. And we, we want to be the model. And we followed off of the CAHOOTS program in Eugene, Oregon. But quite frankly, we built a better and more robust team than what they have there in Eugene. And we're super proud of that. And we want the Santa Rosa model to be the new model for the nation to be able to follow. And, and we're excited to be kind of leading along that path. Well, that's great. I actually have it in my notes somewhere way in here <laughs> on the cahoots piece why don't you actually just speak to that now because that is a program that i looked up and it was very impressed with you want to explain to the listener what the cahoots program looks like and, and maybe how it differentiates from the santa rosa model absolutely so this is though one of the most exciting things so like during the george floyd protests and kind of some of the national movement toward reforming law enforcement, we that's where really Kahoot started getting its prominence. And quite frankly, I, I've been in law enforcement for 23 years, been uh, staunchly uh, uh, a proponent of some of the mental health forms. I had never even heard of the Kahoot's program until June of 2020. And then it started wow. getting shared and activist groups started bringing it forward saying, hey, we want to look at this. So I sit on the board of directors of NAMI Sonoma County for the National Alliance on Mental Illness. And so I had some connections and I was able to quickly get a contact over for the CAHOOTS program. That stands for Crisis Assistance Helping Out on Our Streets. And it's run by a local nonprofit in Eugene, Oregon called the White Bird Clinic. And the city of Eugene, they really are, are pioneers in this area. In 1989, they started this team in the city of Eugene, Oregon. Wow. Uh, and they partnered with the White Bird Clinic. And what it is, is having civilian non-law enforcement personnel responding to those in a mental health crisis. So they started small in Eugene with an EMT and a non-licensed mental health clinician. So a mental health clinician, but isn't licensed by the state, uh, going to calls and they're getting dispatched by the Eugene Police Department. So they have the same radio that a police officer has. But right now, when you get a call of, hey, my young, my daughter, my son, my husband, my wife is is uh, is hallucinating or going into crisis and they're struggling with mental illness, you would have a police officer and a fire engine go into those calls. And, and most of the time, two police officers go into that call. And what we've learned from talking to the families that just the presence of the police officer uniform, 
the firearm, kind of that right. official capacity can be adding more trauma to the event of someone who's already in a traumatic situation. So the city of Eugene created this program and they were, they're having this team go in lieu of a police officer to those calls. And it's built over the last now coming up on 32 years that, that it's now a full 24 seven response model. So the city of Santa Rosa, we were able to reach out with them. I met with Eugene police department with the white bird clinic and we were very excited because they started getting inundated from calls across the country from agencies right, right. doing the same as me. But because the city of Santa Rosa, our political leaders, our chief of police here, were so invested in this, we were able to be one of the select few cities across the country to sign a consulting agreement with the White Bird Clinic. So we paid them actually $50,000. We paid them for me to have kind of unfettered access to their policies, their procedures, their vehicle schematics, meeting with their staff. And they assigned like a liaison to me. And I've met with him dozens of times uh, to be able to kind of see like, it's, I didn't want to reinvent the wheel here in Santa Rosa. We wanted to see what's the proven model they're doing there in Eugene. How can we bring this to the city of Santa Rosa? And I kind of jokingly tell their staff, like we built what I call a Cahoots Plus program. We've taken the base, what they've done at Cahoots, and we've made it that much more better for the city of Santa Rosa. And our model is more expensive without a doubt but it's without a doubt more robust. It has more bells and whistles. So we're kind of like the Cadillac version of the Cahoots program, uh, but built like under their core foundations. They've come out and done training with our team. And so we're really proud to be partners with them, but excited to see like how we can even with a strong investment from our community and our city leaders, how we can be building even a better program that better serves our community here in Santa Rosa. Well, that's cool. Cause some of the numbers that I saw in your deck it says 4 million adults untreated for severe mental illness. One out of four, all fatal police encounters involve mental illness. One in five of all jail and prison inmates involve mental illness. And one in 10 of all law enforcement responses across the board involves mental illness. Yeah, and These that's a staggering, a staggering statistic of saying 25% of officer-involved shootings involve someone with a severe mental illness. And quite honestly, I think that number is low. You're seeing, and actually there's a study you can see online that in San Jose several several years ago, I don't remember the year, but 100% of their officer-involved shootings were involving someone with a serious mental illness. And we're seeing that over and all over with serious mental illness and substance abuse addictions are so tied, like tied into these chaotic events that result in officer-involved shootings. So that's why, and even here in the Sonoma County Jail, and you see this across the nation, and the Sonoma County Jail right now, we're averaging over 50% of the jail inmates in our local jail here are diagnosed with a, a serious mental illness. So what it's becoming is a de facto mental health ward for patients across the county that are right. committing low-level offenses. And we think there's a there's a fascinating book that I have here on my site called Bedlam uh, that a psychologist wrote. And he talks about kind of the breakdown in our mental health systems. And we do that in the 50s and the 60s. And we had uh, President Reagan and President Kennedy, and they had their their thoughts were, they thought they were doing what's best for the community of saying, hey, these were not safe facilities. There was a lot of uh, of mistreatment of mental health uh, patients in these facilities. But instead, what we did was push that to local states and communities to be able to handle. And there was no, there was nothing there. So what's happening now is they're in the streets, they're on our streets, they're on their doorsteps of businesses, and they're not getting the treatment that they need. And what's happening now is all we did was now have them sitting in local county jails across the nation. So, and they're getting, and they're not getting the mental health treatment that they need. So it's time for us to kind of have a reckoning in America to say like, what can we do to help support those who are struggling with mental illness 
And it's, if we start investing in that, you're going to see the reduction in jail bookings and police officer encounters, and most importantly, of not seeing people tragically injured or killed on both sides, not only for the mental ill patients, but also police officers who get injured and community members who get injured. So I, I really feel like it frankly doesn't get the attention that it needs. And I'm excited to see some of kind of the movement across California and the nation we've seen in the last year and a half in this area. Uh, yeah, so am I. And I have a lot of personal issues around that. So I would imagine that Cahoots is probably like, oh, my God, it's about time. <laughs> We've been doing this for 30 years. So it's, yeah, it's that piece. And then I mentioned I have a personal issue because my little brother, we lost my little brother to addiction uh, and mental health issues in 2007. And going through all of the machinations of getting him in and out of rehab, him on the streets, I had to go find him numerous times and watching some of the peace officers that dealt with them, they were really good men and women uh, in that case. It was in Rochester, Minnesota, where he was. And so I watched all that happen and the frustrations from my mother, as an example, for the lack of care that was there. And then when the care was there, it was wrapped around harm reduction and it was wrapped around giving them drug kits and giving them a place to do the drugs. And we were like, yeah, it's not working for our little brother. <laughs> and you know, 20 years later, obviously we know that these harm reduction policies weren't necessarily working. And as you know, in San Francisco and Portland and Seattle and a couple other places that experimented with this very same harm reduction policies, they weren't working. And so it just got worse and worse and worse. And that is why I think this issue was so close to my heart. Um, the next thing, too, I thought was really neat. In October of 2020, President Trump signed the National Suicide Hotline Designation Act, which is a new phone number, 988, for suicide prevention. You want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, and this is something that's a thing that's been long waiting to happen. So it started federally, and with this act by Trump, President Trump signed that each state was mandated to build like a structure. Now, the problem is that we're still struggling, even in a state like California, to build that structure yeah. that we have. Right now, we have 17 crisis centers, like call, crisis uh, call centers across the state of California. But like for my local jurisdiction, we have one that covers four counties from Sonoma County, Napa County, Lake and uh, Marin County. So it's a pretty large geographical area that covers these spaces, but it's supposed to be an alternative. So an alternative to 911, that if you're experiencing a mental health crisis or your loved one is that you could dial 988 and you get connected to a non-law enforcement crisis center to get some of the assistance, assurance over the phone. Hopefully they could uh, talk through whatever the suicidal or crisis situation you're in. But the most important part of that is building a system where you could have these mobile crisis uh, teams that could respond out and assist. And frankly, there's only a few across the state of California right now. So we don't have that part. We have the 988 system built, but we don't have the crisis response team. So there's some pending legislation in California right now that to put, uh, I believe it's an 80 cent per cell phone tax to be able to go toward this 988. And Governor Newsom has already put over $20 million uh, toward this program. But $20 million is a drop in the bucket for the needs across right. the state of California. So we need a, this is a time for us to come together, speak to your local legislators about this 988 bill that's pending to be able right. to get it. And maybe taxing cell phones is not the right way. I don't know, but we need to find some type of sustainable funding. And right now, California is seeing billions of dollars of a surplus. Well, then let's invest it in some of these things, like with our mental health response and be able to give the cities across California the, the, financial support they need to be able to get these teams created. 
Right. And so that the crisis intervention model that you guys have, you talked about briefly, it's, it's a police officer that's paired with a licensed mental health clinician. And you have two licensed mental health clinicians paired with an EMT, two plainclothes trained mental health officers, and a peace officer and a paramedic. How is it? That's that's the cahoots on cahoots plus, correct? Yeah. So, well, those are a couple different models that you're referring to. Like, so those are models across the state. So you see, uh, there's a very fascinating documentary, if anyone wants to see, called Ernie and Joe Crisis Cops. And they follow, it's an HBO documentary. If you haven't seen it, it's fascinating. I, I encourage you and your viewers to uh, go check it out. And it's about an hour and a half, but they follow the San Antonio Police yep. Department, who actually, you wouldn't necessarily think that Texas, but Texas is actually pretty progressive in this area with some of their mental health response at local law enforcement agencies. And they follow two plain, and that's the model there, where they have two plain clothes officers who get additional training in de-escalation, procedural justice, and being able to uh, mental health. And they go out there and that's the model that they have them going. And it's pretty fascinating. And you see, you have to get the right officer to be able to be part of those teams. And not every officer has those skill sets, to be quite right. honest. But right. those two officers, Joe and Ernie, they're, they're incredible and in the work they do. And you see their heart and you see their passion when they talk to those in crisis. So that's one of the models you see other models where you're putting just the licensed mental health clinician with an EMT. So what we built here in the city of Santa Rosa, and really we have a two-part system that we're going to do. Our first one is we put a licensed mental health clinician. And it's that's an important distinction. So Cahoots actually doesn't have licensed mental health clinicians right. because they're expensive and they're right. harder to recruit and to obtain. But for us, that was an important investment. So to be licensed in the state of California, you have to have a bachelor's degree and a related mental health field you have to have a master's degree in the same related field. Then you have to have 3,000 clinical hours of working out in the field, working with those in crisis. Wow. Then you have to take a, a state certification test and be certified by the California Board of Behavioral Sciences. There's actually a significant amount of training to be a licensed mental health clinician. Wow. Uh, that that kind of surprised me. I didn't know. as And this is compared to your local California officer who gets eight hours of mental health and crisis training right. at the academy. Right. That's so, a pretty big delta. Yeah. And <laughs> absolutely. It's startling. Yeah. And is that it sounds almost prohibitive in the sense of how do you do you get enough? Have you been able to recruit enough people with that level of skill? It's and difficult. And and quite honestly, that the licensed mental health clinicians don't get the salary that like parallels the level of training and expertise. That was my next so question. <laughs> they sent themselves and got their master or their bachelor's and their master's worked kind of at like a, a junior apprentice job for their 3000 clinical hours. Right. And then they're getting paid $80,000 or $90,000, oh. which isn't peanuts, but it's not enough for someone who's put that level of training and expertise no. into that job. So it's difficult to recruit them. So that's what we're doing in our team that there is, a, they have what they call an associate licensed mental health clinician. So that's someone who has their bachelor's, their master's, and they're working toward their 3,000 clinical hours. So right. we allow associates in our team. So it's either associate or full of license, and the associates are working toward getting their 3,000 clinical hours on our team and are going to soon be licensed. So that's what we did. And we entered into a great agreement with the County of Sonoma's behavioral health team. So they're embedding these associate or licensed mental health clinicians for free in our team with a partnership with our county. So we're excited about that. And then we started looking at teams across the country about the EMT versus the paramedic. And in Cahoots, they do the same thing. They do an EMT or a nurse. It's a cost-saving mechanism. But 
I met with the Portland Street Response Team, and I also met with the STAR team in Denver. These are both teams, and they both embedded paramedics from their fire department. And we got some, some strong feedback on the additional level of training and expertise you get with a paramedic versus an EMT. And one of the biggest one is in California, an EMT can like assess the situation on the scene, but they have to send it to a higher level of care to be able to clear that patient. They don't have the ability to assess, treat, and release a patient in the field. But a paramedic does have that ability. So that was important for us because not only do they have an advanced level of medical treatment, they can administer some narcotics in the field that an EMT cannot do. But what we wanted to do is we're looking toward holistically diverting police calls by this new mental health crisis team. But we also wanted to divert trips to the local ERs. And we're seeing that emergency rooms across the country are filled with low-level medical issues that don't need an emergency treatment in an ER. And all it does is impede the ability for your emergency room doctors to be able to focus on those who are really in a medical crisis. So we want our paramedic is going to be able to assist those in the field, be able to be able to treat low-level, do low-level wound cares and things like that, whether it be a suicidal person who maybe did some small hesitation cuts to their wrist or something, but not severe, or a homeless individual who needs some type of wound care, other type of assistance. So that was a big investment for us to put the paramedic versus an EMT. Then we started meeting with these teams. So the STAR team was a perfect example in Denver. Their first year data, they saw 63% of their calls were homeless related. And in and Sonoma right. County, the same for you in San Francisco, we have yeah. strong homeless or uh, large homeless populations. So I think our data is going to show the same thing. It is important to note, this is not a homeless team. We focus on first on mental health, second on substance abuse, and third, homelessness. But we all know that there is a strong like parallel between those struggling with mental health and substance abuse in the homeless community. They're not all, but it's certainly, it's certainly very prevalent in the homeless population. So we're going to, so that's why we looked in Santa Rosa to make a third edition, which is to ban a homeless outreach specialist in our vehicle. So that way they can be providing the level of care that some of the homeless individuals in our streets need. And they also have a greater like ability to get that person into some temporary shelter. And then most importantly, start working toward getting them some permanent supportive Shelter. So we have those three of a licensed mental health clinician, the firefighter paramedic, and the homeless outreach specialist. Those three ride together in one vehicle as a multidisciplinary team. They all three have to be present for the team to go out. And they ride like in a white van with the name of our team. We call it the In Response Mental Health Support Team. Uh, and they ride with that. They wear gray uniforms like polos that just say In Response with blue jeans and tennis shoes, no weapons, no pepper spray, no firearms, nothing. But they're, they are a part of our police department. So we dispatch them. They have police radios, just like our police officers have. They have a mobile data computer, just like a police vehicle has. And they're all calls that come into our 911 dispatch center are screened for this team. And whenever appropriate, we're not sending a police officer and a fire engine to that call. We're sending our in-response mental health support team to that call. And we hope that at a full 24-7 response model, that we're going to be able to divert over 5,000 calls a year that a police officer was responding to, that now we have this enhanced level of service responding to that call. And it, it may even be more than 5,000 once the community support and knowledge grows on this program. That's a great point. So let me ask you this. A couple of questions popped up to me. What is the homeless resource? What is their qualification specific to you know, helping the homeless? Because obviously you have really big criteria specific to the mental health associate. What does that training look like? And how does that, uh, how is that in conjunction with the department? 
So the homeless training for officers or for the staff on the response for team? The, for the, the homeless staff response team, that that group. So we entered into a contract with, uh, it's called Catholic Charities here in Santa Rosa. So the Diocese of Santa Rosa has a Catholic Charities arm, and they already operate what we call a homeless outreach street team, host team, that they've already operated in Santa Rosa. And what they really focus on is hiring individual with a lived experience who have already experienced homelessness in their life. And they have like, you and I can read all the books we want or understand about what homelessness, but we're never really going to have that understanding of I've never been homeless myself and, and live some of the hardships that they've had to deal with. So they focus on, on people who have that lived experience who have worked in the streets and are very familiar with the system of care that we have here in Sonoma County. The Catholic charities also operates the Sonoma County's biggest homeless shelter, the Sam Jones uh, homeless shelter that we have here in the city of Santa Rosa. So they have absolute access of getting individuals into that temporary housing. They also operate the city of Santa Rosa's only uh, family shelter that we have where families with children can be able to come into. So they have instant access to get people into some of those shelters. And so it's such an important part of our team. And then they really focus on they, they go through a little matrix that they ask of, of accessing the vulnerability of those individuals, whether it be through substance abuse, whether it be their mental health, whether it be their physical health. And they really and that helps them prioritize of their housing and then also what their housing is going to be. They also operate a pretty cool program that we're proud of here in the city of Santa Rosa, where we bought a local hotel working uh some home key funds and some other funds here and with 144 runs and they, and they converted it and uh, uh i can't remember the exact percentage but i believe it's 40 percent of those are dedicated toward veteran uh, homeless veterans that they're able to put in there in That's all 144 great. rooms so catholic charity runs that one as well so their staff has a lot of expertise but most importantly have that gen- that genuine knowledge of yeah. what the homeless needs and about how to care specifically for them. So we're really excited about having them. And I think that's what sets our team. It's it's one of the things that sets our team across of having, of investing with the licensed mental health clinician and the paramedic comes at a, a much greater cost than the EMT, but they work so holistically with our fire department, that advanced level of care and support we think is really important. And then we were able to use that to leverage our local hospitals. So we have three large hospitals here in the city of Santa Rosa, and we're able to leverage financial support from our local hospitals that contributed to our team because they see, not only do they care about our community, but they see that they're going to financially benefit from this team because they're not going to have uninsured people with minor uh, uh, medical issues sitting in their local ERs. So they knew that our team would be able to divert from our local ERs. And that's what we're really going to be measuring the success for our first year is for us, it's like we're going to be police diverts. We're going to have emergency room diverts. But what I'm excited about is to see diverts from our local jail. That now we have people instead of getting yeah. booked for minor offenses. And so many times their criminal offense is just a symptom of the problem. So they're in a, met, in a mental health crisis or they're struggling with substance abuse and they get into a fight with someone in a store or they yeah. do a minor vandalism or they steal some stuff from a store. And under our old model, you're seeing people like that go to the county jail for a misdemeanor petty theft charge, which and sometimes they can sit in there for days or even weeks for these charges. But now we're focusing on what got you into this crisis for this young man or this woman yeah. and then getting them to our crisis stabilization unit, getting them some long term supportive housing. But that's another thing that we talk about in that slide deck is this cycle of psychosis. And that's what we see right now in California and across the nation, that you see someone 
who goes into like a, a state of what they call acute psychosis. They're, they're having uh, auditory or visual hallucinations, or they're having some type of paranoid delusions, and they go into crisis, and then their offending behavior starts. And that's when they're fighting with their family members. They're arming themselves and barricading them in the room because they're having these these crazy delusions that, that demons or someone's coming after them, or they're in a store out in public when they start uh, experiencing this episode and then the call to 911's coming in, then police officers, fire engines are coming. Sometimes they're getting booked in the jail. And then you have that forced stabilization. And that forced stabilization is they're in a local county jail for three to four weeks or even months. They're, maybe they get put on a, a, psych, a psychotic hold of a, what 5150 of the Welfare and Institution Code we have here in California, where you can sit for a 72-hour hold if you're a danger to yourself, a danger to others, or gravely disabled. And you'll see them sit. And then during that time, they start getting medicated. They start getting stable. Then they have a pattern of three to four weeks of stable behavior. And then here we go again. They're off their meds. They're back in that acute psychosis. And it's just this cycle. And then we, as police officers, we get to know someone by name. It's like, oh, we're going back out to this house again. And it's just every month. It's that cycle. So what we've started doing with our team, and this is another big addition to the Cahoots team, is we built what we call system navigators. So we have the three team members who go out to those in crisis but we have a team of system navigators and they work in the office and that what they're doing is they're doing that upstream approach. So they're trying to work with people before they go into crisis in the first place. So if our team contacts someone and they get put on a, on a mental health hold, or maybe they just get consulted with our system navigators are knocking on their door later that week. And they're saying, Hey, Joe, Jill, whatever their name is, how are you doing? Are you taking your meds? You're seeing your doctor and what they actually do. And this is the first time we've ever seen this in the County of Sonoma is they're actually driving them like, Hey, I'll drive you to your doctor's appointment. I'll drive you to Long's drugs and get your meds filled. I'll drive you to wow. social security or wherever and get, make sure that you're getting the financial assistance you need so you can keep a roof over your head and not go on the homelessness. So they're really doing that proactive work. And then they're working with family members of helping them. Our mental health system is so complex. I've been in this business for 23 years and I don't even understand all aspects of it. So imagine some poor loved one who's saying, hey, my, my son or daughter is constantly going into the crisis and they want assistance about how to get them support, how to maybe give them on a state conservatorship. So our yeah. system navigators help with that. And when we we're doing a lot of our community meetings, we kept getting feedback about we need to do more for helping our, our growing Latinx population here in Sonoma County, which we have go, going close to 35 to close soon to be 40% here in the County of Sonoma of Latino residents. And some are uh, monolingual and only speaking Spanish. So what we did is we worked with a local nonprofit called Humanidad Therapy and Education to hire bicultural and bilingual staff members to specifically focus on our growing Latinx community here. So we have two nonprofits, Buckaloo Programs and Humanidad Therapy, who are the system navigators. They're contacting people, they're driving them to appointments. And that's something that is a big investment. And it was a financial investment for the city of Santa Rosa, but it's a level of service that I haven't seen at any program across California. And that's where we're really excited to say, phase one of it is getting these mobile crisis teams but you still have the problem that the mobile crisis teams are just taking them to your local crisis stabilization unit. Most of them do not have the appropriate amount of beds that they need. So within hours, they're getting put back out into their, into their homes, and they still don't have that level of supportive services they need to keep them from going to a crisis again. So this the system navigators is such an important part, and that's what I really want to make sure that we see teams that are being created across California and the nation 
to invest with these system navigators and understand that, yes, it may cost some extra funds, but man, the reward that you get from this and the benefit not only to your community, but to reduce level of calls to those going into the crisis is going to be overwhelmingly positive. Well, that's that's so cool. And kind of back to our earlier discussion, this is exactly what my friends, my progressive friends specifically have asked for. <laughs> They've <Yes>. said, <laughs> you know, it would be great if if police officers didn't have to go on these calls because they're not trained to do so. It would be great if and they mentioned this specifically that the actual uniforms are intimidating, that the guns are intimidating, that just a peace officer himself may have, you know, triggers specific to anyone who's been addicted or in and out of jail. So the fact that you guys send this little triumvirate team to, with lived experience, the homeless person and the actual trained clinician and the person who understands, you know, addiction and mental health and those pieces, that's awesome to hear because that's one of those things where if that would have happened to my little brother, as an example, my, he would have been, I think, more at peace because he was scared. To, he went to jail a lot. Yeah, And my mom would have been much happier about that because she would have seen that someone cares that, hey, you know, Stevie, we need to get you to the hospital or, hey, Stevie, let me take you to Long's and get your drugs or even asking, are you on your meds? Because that was a big thing with my brother. If he wasn't on his meds, you know, yeah. he would go off. And then when he was on his meds for a consistent period of time, which happens to a lot of addicts and or bipolar or anyone who has mental health issues, is that once they get a stabilization through the meds, they think they're okay. <laughs> and then they go off them again. And then the whole vicious cycle repeats itself. So that's really, really good news. I think that John and I, Lieutenant Sensing and I were talking about that as well, is, is part of this funding going to increase the amount of beds and availability that you guys kind of use as a buttress with your in-response teams? How does that look? So that's a little bit different system. So the county of Sonoma, so your local counties, so they receive uh, Prop 63 funding. And I don't know if you're familiar with that, but that was like the tax on millionaires. It's a 1% tax that goes toward mental health resources. And that goes to local counties. And that's one of the primary drivers of some of the funding for the beds. But county of Sonoma is just like many. We have 28 beds at our crisis stabilization unit here but right now, most of the time, they're only operating 12 to 16 of those are in operation due to staffing and capacity. Right. So 12 for the for the county of Sonoma that has almost 600,000 residents, that's not appropriate. We need more yeah. for that. And I'm sure San Francisco, I don't know the numbers there, but I'm sure it's just as alarmingly no, because I've never seen one county that has the appropriate amount of beds, quite honestly. So we need to continue to put more additional funding toward getting those because you can't get the level of service you need and help in five hours uh, when you're in a mental health crisis. You need long-term help to be able to get on your meds, to get stable. And then once they're stable, in that moment of stability is that's when we can start working them on the importance of taking their meds, on the importance yeah. of self-care, yeah. of getting them out assistance. But if they're back out in seven to eight hours, they've never had that time to kind of get that stable, get their feet on the ground. So we need to yeah. uh, build more of those beds. The Sonoma County did just invest in another long-term. So the crisis stabilization ones, are only intended for up to 72 hours. So that's that 5150 of the W and I code that yeah. puts you for that 72 hour like crisis. A doctor can put you on a 5250, which lasts up to 14 days that you can be on a 5250 hold. And that's where we have these different centers. They call them puff centers of these psych uh, uh, facilities that are for more long-term care. So we need to see an investment in some of those because that need that long-term supportive care, but it comes down to funding and it comes down to hiring the, the right staff. But you can hire the right staff if you're willing to pay them the right salary. 
So that's where we have to, that's where cities and counties have to come together in the state of California to put more of this funding in there. But we struggle with that, but we're seeing improvement. The county of Sonoma was actually passed a countywide local tax measure. It's called Measure O toward mental health funding. So that's been a big step forward. And it's because Sonoma County really cares about this. We are a pretty liberal leaning county, but we really care about those in need. We have a lot of people with hearts in our county who want to care, whether it be for the unsheltered or for those with mental health or substance abuse. So as a county, we're kind of putting our money where our mouth is, but we need some more support not only from our, our statewide leaders, but from our federal leaders to make this a priority. And now's the time to do it. So that's why I'm so passionate about us stepping up as local leaders in law enforcement and then encouraging our political leaders to, to move along this moment. And we've had strong, actually, uh, Congressman Mike Thompson, who represents our district here in Sonoma County, actually just yesterday, I got the final word that we got just over a million dollars in a federal earmark with the federal budget that was passed yesterday. Uh, like that, an earmark specifically for our in-response team. So $1 million of federal dollars are coming specifically to the city of Santa Rosa to be able to help our team grow for, uh, go move forward. And we're also going to be able to use some of the ARPA funds, the American Rescue Plan Act funds that came out uh, through COVID is because we're specifically helping with those with our unsheltered population. And uh, that was one of the key parts of that. So we're excited to be able to use some of that federal money, but we'd love to see more from some of our state partners across the state to help us with this program. Well, congrats on that. That's good news. The money just continues to come in. And I think the one thing I wanted to mention, you talked about San Antonio, Texas being a really big state, obviously. And I read a lot about they're doing a lot of reimagining in Texas as well. And I know there was a big story that I read a while ago about Austin's police department actually shut down the police academy for a year to restructure it all. And then the new chief came in and talked about what they were doing specific to that. They hired a consultant um, named Dr. Ann Cregan, who is the new training division manager. And she actually implements a lot of similar programs that you just mentioned in the state of in the state of Texas, but Austin specifically. And she also gets into the specific hiring of diversity and inclusion and equity. And you know, I, I read some of that about you guys, and you mentioned that you're about 35 to 40 percent uh, Hispanic now in the Sonoma County area. I think. How what are you guys doing on the diversity, equity, and inclusion side of things as it relates to these programs? There's a lot of work that be done. And, and again, I think Santa Rosa is ahead of this. So we, I don't know if you're familiar with a campaign that got launched last year called the 30 by 30 campaign. Yep. So uh, we're we're one of the first 100 uh, police agencies in, the, in across the nation to be able to do the 30 by 30 pledge saying by 2030, that 30% of our police academy trainees are going to be represented by female trainees. And that's important for us to be able to say that. And for right now, across the nation, it's 12 percent is the is the average amount of female officers represented in the ranks of police departments. But what I was uh, disappointed to see for as progressive we are here in Santa Rosa and Sonoma County, we actually only had six point eight percent of our department was represented by female sworn officers. So for us, it was kind of like a kick in the pants, like we have to do better. And where we're kind of see is it's not so much of, of a decision by our police administration or city to not hire females, but we really started learning through the 30 by 30 is there's so many barriers to application. There's so many things that are keeping good female candidates from applying. And we got some feedback from community members who don't really understand these concepts of like, 
hey, are you lowering the standards just to be that? And and I bristle at that. We're not lowering yeah. the standards. What we're doing is removing some of the barriers to get the best applicants for our department. So some of the things we learned through 30 by 30 is like barriers, and this isn't just for female applicants, but for all applicants, about being concerned about some of like our the physical uh, uh, tests that we take. So we do a test even early in the in the process where you have to uh, drag a 150 pound dummy, you have to climb over a six foot wall, you have to do a 200 uh, yard uh, sprint and under, uh, and uh, oh, it's actually 500 in under two minutes, you have to get up and move. I did all these things too, <laughs> to be able to show that I could do it and feel confident that the trainees, but you got to get up and move to do that. Yeah. But we had kind of this false thing of like, where people didn't really understand that process. So they were very intimidated. So some of the things we did is start putting that out there on our website saying, this is exactly the physical things that you're going to be tested on. It shouldn't be a surprise. That way you can right. train with it. Right. You can be prepared for it. And then what we're also doing is we're going to start working on some training classes so we can say, Hey, you're interested in applying. Well, Saturday, we're going here to our local park. And we're gonna we're gonna like do the dummy drag, and we're gonna climb over the wall, and we're gonna practice the sprint. So, and we're gonna help give you some tools so you can make sure you can pass this test. So that's what we're doing, and that's not just for female applicants; that's for all applicants. Right? Yeah. But that was something that we saw. We also saw that we had large numbers of people failing. Like our, our we have an initial like an oral board process where three like police officers or supervisors give you a host of, of questions. And then we had a written exam where you watch a video and you have to write a police report on it. But we saw that we had high numbers of young people uh, failing that test. So we created, again, using that same model of like a little explanation about, hey, this is what to expect on an oral board. This is how to be prepared for an oral board. And the same for the written exam. So we're trying to really reduce those barriers. So the, the what are the intimidating factors to never applying? And then we're hoping to see our number. So we're excited by that 30 by 30 pledge. Also, the city of Santa Rosa, we entered into a, a group with an equity group called Seed Collaborative. And Seed Collaborative examines like the diversity, inclusion, equity, and belonging are the four principles they look at. So Seed Collaborative is going to do a citywide examination of the city of Santa Rosa, but we also form what we're calling an equitable policing task force. And that equitable policing task force is built of local members of our police department. I'm the police department liaison uh, to that group. And we got a host of community members. So we have representatives, uh, the vice president of our local Sonoma County NAACP, we have uh, other members uh, from our organization uh, of our city. We have a very diverse group that we built on that. And we're asking tough questions like what are some of the concerns about the police department and what are some of the things that we can grow in? And the George Floyd protests, we saw some of the most violent protests we've ever seen in our city's history. In the city, we've never in the, in the history of Santa Rosa. In Santa seen, Rosa. In the, oh, absolutely. We had protests and we saw rocks and bottles being thrown at police officers officers injured but unfortunately we saw protesters that were injured and quite honestly we made some mistakes as the santa rosa police department and in our response to the protests and it's something that we have really looked at internally about how can we make changes with our our management with our training with our deployment of resources in these protests but we're having a lot of frank conversations in this equitable policing task force about how we can rebuild some of the trust we lost with our community during those protests. And I think it's really bringing us together stronger as we all like come together as the community and the police department, how can we come together to understand? And we're also having officers talk about what it felt like to go home with getting a rock or bottle thrown at them. And we had protesters with Roman candles shooting the Roman candles at the officers and 
burning holes in their uniforms. And that's a traumatic event for our officer. But then it's important for our officers to hear some of the trauma that protesters face during that with 40 millimeter uh, soft tip rounds being fired at protesters. And we unfortunately had some protesters who were hit in the face with some of those 40 millimeter rounds and caused significant injuries. And we we have to look at that saying, hey, we can't allow the chaotic event to allow things like that to happen. So that's some of the things that we're examining, but we're really proud of some of the work we're doing here and the 30 by 30 campaign, the equitable policing task force are just two of the things. We also, the state of California launched the RIPA Act, the Racial Identity Profile Act last year. And for our city, we were uh, obligated to start in January of 2022. Our chief of police, Ray Navarro, wanted to get that data even sooner. So we launched six months early in July of 2021. We started collecting that data, mandating our officers to fill out that data on any proactive contact you make. So whether it be a vehicle stop, a pedestrian stop, a bicycle stop, any proactive contact you make, the officers fill out the 17 question thing talking about the reason for the stop, uh, the race and gender of the uh, individual stopped, and whether they were searched or not and arrested. Because we really want to examine that data and understand, are there other like uh, systemic issues here with our enforcement efforts at the police department? And we want to be able to take corrective action as soon as possible to make sure that everyone in our community gets treated trarily and impartially here in our community. And that goes with us understanding that data. So we're just about to get that first round of data from the Department of Justice. And I'm anxious to see it. And um, I feel very confident that it's going to show that our officers are making the right decisions. But if that data doesn't prove that, then it's going to help us to make some immediate steps to make corrections. That's great news. And so one of the things I read, and this is more national than specific to Santa Rosa, but I I watched a lot of online symposiums specific to peace officers being interviewed by either local officials or psychiatrists about the job itself and how after 2017, there's been a much bigger focus on police being, let's just say bias or racist, or, you know, they have an agenda and they're just, they're, they're out beating people up. And so it's been very difficult specifically on morale. And that's actually one thing that they talked about in Austin and how a lot of the peace officers themselves are having a hard time going in. You mentioned this as, as it relates to the, the riots or the, the protests, probably a better word, but, how are you guys dealing with your own mental health, with your own officers? What does that look like specific to additional training or additional budgets? Or, you know, is there PTSD training? Is there, you know, more mental health, you know, internal people? What does that look like as far as your department? Yeah, that's a great question. And quite honestly, you see like the cycles in my law enforcement career. Like after I was a police officer, and after 9-11 and, and, and everyone loved the cops and right. people on the back and things like that and how you've seen that change and, and then ebbs and flows over the years. And um, honestly, George Floyd was the lowest point ever of like the treatment of officers and feeling. And some of it honestly was communities members rightfully frustrated with what they saw. And, and, and but what is important for understand police officers equally cringed and got mad when they saw right the treatment of George Floyd and the murder of George Floyd. And just like the, 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 and you just wanted like, you're yelling at the screen there when you're watching that video of like, what are you doing? Get off. Yeah. And I'm like, it's yeah. maddening to police officers to see that. But it was also 
a point, and I've been now for 23 years and so proud to tell when someone talks to me at a coffee shop, hey, what do you do for a living? Or my local church and say, hey, I'm a Santa Rosa police officer. But that was one of the few times in my 23 years that I wasn't so quick to say, oh, I'm a police officer. because, And that's a sad thing for me in my life to be able to say, like, it was like a time where you had to be a little bit more careful before you identified to yourself to a stranger as being a police officer. And I've never experienced that over my career. And we saw, we you see a lot of trauma in the, in the work of a police officer. And sometimes it's actually, I met with a psychologist years ago who focused on police uh, uh, traumatic brain injuries and, and other trauma. And he talked about like, it's not always like the crazy incident where you see you see some bloodbath or whatever it may be. But so many times it's like that backpack you have on your back. And it's that one thing you go to a fatal car collision and you see an elderly person uh, killed or you see a young person killed or then you go to that suicide, you go to the stab and you go to the shooting and each one of those, you're kind of putting a rock in your backpack and you're yeah. putting another rock in your backpack after that next shooting. Then you go to that domestic violence and you see a young woman brutally uh, injured and you put another rock in that backpack. And after 20 years, that backpack's pretty darn heavy and it really starts to weigh down you. And that's where I think you see that cumulative stress in law enforcement where it's little incident after little incident but it adds up and it, and it really does have an effect. And then we saw some major traumas here in the city of Santa Rosa. So we had the Tubbs fire in October of 2017. And we had police officers who were convinced they were going to die that night. They were, it was multiple police officers, our police vehicles were catching on fire uh, by embers raining down in the cars. And they literally had to flee their vehicles, which were engulfed in flames and burned there in the streets of Santa Rosa. It was very disorienting for the officers who were, very smoke. We were having audio communication issues, internet issues that were going down as, as internet towers were burned and consumed. And we saw thousands of homes here in the city of Santa Rosa um, burned to the ground. And that was a trauma-filled event. And then we've seen, unfortunately, followed by the Kincaid fire and then the glass fire and year after yep. year, these fires. And so they're re-traumatizing events for our staff. So it's it's had an impact. And then you have COVID, and that was traumatizing for people across the nation. Yeah. We were actually the first law enforcement agency in the state of California that lost an officer to COVID. In March of 2020, at the very beginning of COVID, we had a, a young detective, uh, Mary Lou Armour was her name, who was diagnosed with COVID. It was very new to the medical community at that time and to us. And unfortunately, she passed away uh, from COVID. And so that hit us as a gut punch early on to this. So it's been incident after incident where we've seen our staff affected. So it's something that we've been trying to react more to. So our, the city of Santa Rosa, we have an employee assistance program where employees can have confidential um, meetings with local therapists to kind of talk about some of their stress. We've built over the years what we call a critical stress debrief. So after a major incident of a traumatizing incident of going to a homicide or what really officers in my experience, what's been the most traumatizing is the death of young infants. It's, it's hard to be able to deal with that. It takes a toll on yeah. you. So we have these critical uh, stress debriefs after those incidents, and we have a therapist or a psychologist who comes in, and they talk with the staff. And what we've learned through some of the studies is it's important just to talk about it and to express your feelings and let the tears roll out if they need to yeah. and let them to be able to have that, but in that safe environment. So for those critical stress debriefs, it's only the staff who is who is on the scene. So it's not just some looky-loos coming in from outside. It's just the staff. It's no supervisors aren't part of that. So just the line level staff gets to kind of feel like they have a safe environment there with the psychologist. And they talk about as a group, if they want to have one-on-one -on -one meetings and they can use our EAP providers. But then we also invested in a group called 
wellness solutions here for the city of Santa Rosa, where we have an employee here that's focused on some of the employee wellness. And they're running like different type of physical programs and helping people work out and help, and they do little fitness uh, events here to make sure that our staff is in good physical shape. But we understand the direct parallels of gun physical fitness and how much it has to do with your mental uh, fitness and being able to have that. So that's something we invested. And then now with the younger generation, we see them more generated toward a smartphone. So we launched a new app called Cortico. And it's an app that like is through a, a psychologist who works specifically with a public safety. And it's a pretty cool thing. If you, There's a lot of information online about it. But Cortico is about where you're in a moment of price and doesn't mean if you're here in Santa Rosa or maybe you're on vacation at Disneyland, but sometimes this trauma can hit you and the Cortico app lets you directly talk to psychologists. You can reach out to people at Geotags wherever you are and you can reach out to a therapist in the area that you are. It has a lot of uh, support to be able to help people through a moment of crisis. So those are just some of the things we're doing, but honestly, we have a lot of work to do. And there's always been a little bit of a stigma associated with police officers medicaling out on a on a psych uh, on a psych injury uh like that and so but i've seen for the first time in the last like two three years more and more officers going out on these psych holds and being just more open and honest about saying like the toll on me is it's been too great for me but to do my job effectively and that's sad to see so as me tapping into the role as the chief of police for our organization it's something that's going to be one of my top priorities is that employee wellness and support and it's not just like selfishly for us and our organization. I think there's such a strong parallel between a healthy and mentally sound officer is going to be better able to serve the community. And if you have an officer who's not going out in the right headspace and then they're going to that first call and that person, maybe they're doing a traffic stop and that person's argumentative in the face of the officer, they're going to have a shorter fuse. They're yeah. not going to be able to handle some of that situation. And that officer may react poorly and may use force when it's not necessary or may use language that's not necessary. And it's certainly not going to be able to portray the standard of excellence that we expect from our officers. So by my early investment in the officers and the staff we have in the organization, I think that we're going to see a better level of service, care, compassion, empathy for those in need in our community. So to me, it's it's one of the most important investments we can do. And I'd like to see more police departments and cities across the country make that investment. But quite honestly, when financial times get tough, those are the type of stuff that go. They're considered like fluff. It's not fluff. It's, it, it ought to be one of the core fundamental aspects that we're offering our employees and a pretty difficult uh, job that it is to lead today in law enforcement. Yeah, and that actually leads to a lot of the questions that you know I've read specific to policing in general is that that type of training is expensive. And so not only is it the health care and the preventative mental health for your officers and employees, I think that's fantastic. The idea there, though, is that because you're a big enough department, you can, specific to de-escalation anyway, have more training because your officers can go do that offsite. And when they do that, they have someone to actually take their shift. To your point earlier, if you have the majority of the police departments throughout the United States of having 20 officers or less, it's very difficult to actually give those officers the training they need on an annual basis based on the fact that there's no one there to take the shifts. Right? Yeah, that's an important point. And that's what's sometimes frustrating about the defund the police movement that people are, I understand what they're talking about, that we have to, and we have to reimagine the police response. But President Obama actually made it has a great interview on this where he talks about like defund and, and he talks about some of the fallacies of that. But his biggest point is it's not about like subtraction. It's about addition. 
So, yeah. and that's what he brings up a good point. Like, so when we're defining, guess what goes? Training goes, which yeah. talks about de-escalation, talks about procedural justice, about this mental health training, about these programs. Those are the first things to get cut. So, and then also having the staff like you talked about. So it's counterproductive. So even our, our mental health support team. So for, for the full 24 seven response team, it's gonna be approximately $2.4 million a year for all the staff members dedicated to that, to the vehicles, the advanced life support equipment for the training for that team, $2.4 million. So what that needs to be is an addition to, and that's what the city of Santa Rosa did right. We didn't take a dollar out of the police department budget we found funding. We aggressively looked at state, federal grants. We worked with our local hospitals. We used the ARPA money. We used the new federal earmark from Congressman Thompson. We used all of that money to come together to make an addition to the police department. And we provided a level of service the city of Santa Rosa has never seen. Our officers are excited because they're not going to some of these calls that, frankly, they don't have the training and expertise to go to. Right. So it's supporting our officers. And if we can use this money to divert over 5,000 calls a year from our Santa Rosa Police Department. Now we do have officers who are going to the calls they need to go to with violence and weapons and the things they need to go to for it's a win-win. But that doesn't come from saying, we're going to take $2.4 million out of your budget because that would have eliminated dozens of officers' positions and really, I think, caused some resentment toward this team and really not been able to provide the level of service that we need to do to our community. So Santa Rosa did it right, but make it in an addition to. And I think that's where we got to start looking around where, and this is where I think sometimes the activists and I, we can join on this. We all agree that we need to reimagine some of the response to police, yeah. but we don't get there by defunding and taking resources away. We get this by collaborating, partnership, and working together to say, how can we reimagine this response and get the money and get the funding and come together collaboratively to be able to build these programs. And then it's a win-win for both of us. It is. And that's actually, and I spent 25 years in the media business. And so my thing is words matter and they're very important. And, you know, I went through this with John because when we were talking about this, I said, defund the police is, is a bumper sticker and bumper stickers don't work for any complexity. And that's the problem with it. If you do defund from something like this, that is a problem. And if you're not proactive with something, it's the same thing that happens with your body. If you're not proactive with your health, you end up in the emergency room. And then that's even more expensive and it's more deleterious to your health. So it's one of those things where preventative healthcare is the same as preventative policing. If you guys can actually go out and have healthier officers, mentally, physically, emotionally, that helps how they actually deal with their job. If you have a team of folks who goes out as a threesome and you have individual training and there's no badges and there's no guns and you're dealing with mental health in general, that is what you talked about earlier where there's 5,000 less calls into dispatch from your peace officers. They then don't have to go out and do that. And that's additional funding. And that's again, where if we actually can separate the two, because I think everyone agrees, and this is the problem with our culture in general, is that we look through everything through an either or narrative. Mm -hmm. And it's usually an and also. And so it's not we actually take money or give money. It's like, no, let's actually separate the duty. Let's look at what a peace officer is trained to do, specific to de-escalating a problem, usually involving danger versus a mental health issue, which is also dangerous, but at a very different level. Maybe not necessarily to the person involved, but you know, the actual patient, if you will. And so how do we actually, and you guys, it seems though, through everything you've talked about today, have 
actually dealt with the real problem, which is mental health. Because if 25%, which is a low number, I think we can agree, that is a staggering statistic. Because if you can actually cut out 25% of your calls into dispatch over a longer period, now you're looking at, oh, not only is our community healthier, but now we're demarcating what needs to be done by peace officers versus mental health units. And then the more mental health units you have, you could actually, maybe in 10 years from now, it would be on par, right? I don't exactly, it's probably not the case, but what is your goal specific to those in response mobile units? How many do you have now? And how many do you hope to have in the next year or so? We have a four phased approach. So we started with the first team. So it's one vehicle, they work seven days a week, the team uh, from 10 hours a day. So from 12 noon till 10 PM, that's phase one. We're just about to launch phase two in May. And phase two will be a second team that goes out from seven to three. So we'll have one team starting that and they'll overlap for three hours in the afternoon. And so the second team will continue to work from 12 to 10. So we'll have 15 hours coverage a day. Phase three, we're going to do by the end of 2022. And that'll be the full 24-7 response model. So we'll have three vans right. that are overlapping 24-7, no matter when you call for crisis, that we're going to have this advanced level of care. Then phase four what I'm optimistically working towards still getting the funding and the staffing for it is to launch a second team in the swing shift hours. Cause that's our peak call volume. I was going to say that probably that's probably is. the biggest hour. Yeah. And then, so then we'd have a really robust system, but it's also important when you examine these systems. And this is where for the activist community that I try working with too, like I'm a huge supporter of these teams. I absolutely believe it's the way to go. But with that, you have to understand and accept some of the limitations of these teams. They still can't go to calls involving weapons or violence. So if you have right. a suicidal subject armed with a handgun to the side of his head, this team of civilian unarmed professionals aren't the right person for that. No. And quite honestly, the community is saying, no, send them to me. And I, when I built this team, I had over 20 labor negotiation meetings with the team of mental health workers. They don't want to go to that call. They're terrified. No. They're like, I can't go to the person with the gun. So we have to understand no. <laughs> that, that we have to be realistic, that they can't go to all those calls. So what I want to do, kind of like in, in, as I step into the role of chief of police, is working with my local city leaders, is I want to look at the other models. And San Diego is actually doing this. They got the PERT team there, the psych emergency response team. And what they're doing is taking a mental health trained officer with a licensed mental health clinician, and they're putting them in a vehicle and they're going out. And what they're doing is they're going to the calls that the civilian mobile crisis team can't go to. So they are going to the man with the gun or the suicidal, like with violent tendencies and things like that. But, and they're going to those calls, but they work in close collaboration. Yeah. And it's an officer that has the right, like, demeanor for it and the right ability to de-escalate. But then also when they're talking to someone who's suicidal armed with a gun, they have that licensed mental health clinician with all of their expertise, their thousands of hours of clinical training, and they're whispering that officer's ear saying, say this or do this, or this is how we resolve this right. without reusing in force. So that's what I want is I want both plans. And then really that's the best of both worlds of these licensed mental health officers and the clinicians working together with the civilian team and that they holistically can handle any call that we have here in our city. And then we still have that third component that is going to continue to grow with the system navigators. And I want to send that so right now. It's just Monday through Friday from eight to five. So I get, I want to see that grow to a full seven day a week and even an evening shift with these system navigators that people can call, they can get assistance. And we have a dedicated line for the system navigators and a dedicated line for our mobile crisis response team. But we want to see that expand. So that's kind of our plan. But 
for me, I love to have these grandiose plans, but it's going to have to come with sustained funding for that. So the city of Santa Rosa, we're actually launching a new um, public safety and violence prevention tax measure that we're going to be doing. It's going to be in the ballot of November 2020. And I want to make sure that our in-response mental health team is a key part of that ballot. And I think that's what our community wants. And I want it to be sustainable, not for the next three, four, five years, but for the next 25 years and, and longer. And I have young kids growing up here in Santa Rosa that are in high school. And I want to make sure that resource is available for them. And it really is exactly what our community wants. And the very first day of our team, we just launched in January of this year, our very first day, we went to a 10-year-old girl at a local middle school who was having suicidal statements that she was making to the staff. And instead of the old model where you had a police officer go talk to her, and literally we would have put this 10-year-old girl in the backseat of a police car uh, yeah. and transported her across time to the crisis stabilization unit, that, I don't care who you are, that can be that's, a traumatizing traumatizing. 10-year-old girl. Yeah. I don't want my 10-year-old girl in the back of a police car who, when she's having just a mental health crisis. Instead, this young little girl was able to go in, the, in our crisis stabilization unit, talk just to the team, the licensed mental health clinician, be able to take a, a ride over there and get the support that she needs. And that's exactly why we formed this team. And that's the highest population that we're seeing calling for this team right now is parents who say, quite frankly, I would not call for 911 in the right. past. Because I was scared that my son or daughter would refuse to comply with law enforcement or grab some type of a weapon and it turned into a confrontation or, God forbid, even a shooting. So they did not reach out for service because they were scared of the service that was going to come. Now, with this advanced level of service, they are calling. And it's so important because what was happening under the old model is people weren't getting the help they needed. So they weren't getting assistance. They weren't getting to get the, uh, talk to the psychologist or get some of the meds they needed because family members were scared to call for help. So what I really think actually is that we're going to see an increased number of people calling into our 911 dispatch center, but specifically asking, and, and we hear this a lot, I don't want a police officer, I want the in-response mental health support team to come, and we do our best to be able to uh, provide that service, but that's why we have to get to the 24-7 service as quickly as possible. And we, our, the city of Santa Rosa has already built in the funding for that, Honestly, sadly, right now, what our biggest issue is, is some of the national shortages on vehicles. We ordered four of the Ford Transcans oh, over a year ago, yeah. and we cannot get them delivered. And, and right. the amount of calls and work we've done to get these vans delivered has been uh, this exhausting. So hopefully we're going to have our new vans delivered soon and have the staff to be able to get them and be able to quickly expand this to the full 24-7 response model. Well, that's good. And something you said stood out, the fact that people would offer up that they want the in in mobile response team you have pretty good awareness then in santa rosa about these programs yeah and that's part of our campaign so we started in january and we didn't want to overwhelm the team at first is that so we were we kind of started we did a cool ribbon cutting ceremony and things like that i can send you a video of our ribbon cutting ceremony i actually that saw that we yeah. did so we made kind of a big deal out of it and we had a big community support for it and then uh, now, though, we're starting kind of starting our media campaign. So actually, I'll send you another video. We worked with a local film crew and we did about a two and a half minute video on our team where we have the actual team members. And I didn't want me to be in the video. I want actual team members. So we have them. We have their vehicles and their uniforms. And we launched that on social media a few weeks ago. But now we're starting to we're going to put some uh, poster, like some banner ads on the side of our city buses yeah. talking about in response. And we're, we have a host of other media stuff that we're putting out on social media. And we have posters at our transit mall and our city facilities. 
And we have some radio ads that we're going out. We're also working with our Spanish community that we've done the video in Spanish and putting it out to some of our social media and our uh, Spanish uh, radio ads that we're doing. So we have a whole host of those things that we're just launching actually this week to kind of get the word out there. And then I've done dozens of community presentations where I'm going out in the community, presenting on this team, but also really receiving the feedback of how can we make this team even better? And, and what are some of the needs that maybe we haven't met? And so that's been a really educational process. And we know that this team is going to evolve over the first year as we kind of learn and grow together as a team. But the overwhelmingly positive feedback from our community and from those who are getting the services from this team has just been incredible. And um, we couldn't be here today. And I, I got the pleasure of being able to lead this project, but it would not have been without the strong support from Chief Ray Navarro uh, from the police department, our fire chief, Scott Westrope, who's a very progressive fire chief and, and jumped at the opportunity to bed the paramedics into this team. And then our city leaders, our city manager, Mark Heacha-Smith, and our former city manager, Jeff Colin, were so supportive of being able to get this. And our city council and our mayor have been so supportive. And they're the ones who really put their money where their mouth is and made this possible for us. And then our nonprofits, the Buckaloo programs, Humanidad Therapy and Education and Catholic Charities, and the County of Sonoma Behavioral Health Team. It was all those organizations coming together to make one great team that's providing a level of service that I think really is, is the model for across the state of California. And that's where I really want to do. And that's why I'm so excited about getting the word out and really encouraging some of our political leaders to step up right now and get this the funding needed. So this isn't just for the city of Santa Rosa. This is for every community in California that has this level of service. Wow, that's fantastic. And I, you know, I just want to say this, sir. I I think what you guys have done is amazing. Our journalists have done a couple hundred hours of homework on this subject, and we really wanted to understand it from every vantage point. And it sounds like obviously it's in the infant stages, but you've secured the funding, you've involved the community, you've involved charitable organizations, you've involved mental health, and you've involved your peace officers, and and they all agree and they're moving in concert to be better. And this is exactly to your point around the activists. I love activists because they push us. They push <laughs> us in the right direction. And a lot of things they said were accurate. We need to make sure we do not have peace officers involved in all these mental health cares. We do not have to have peace officers involved in things they don't have training in. They need more training in de-escalation. They need more training in mental health. All of that is taking place. And all of that you guys are doing at Santa Rosa PD. And I, I just want to commend you guys for doing it. I think it's fantastic. And this is this is why it's really important to separate the wheat from the chaff here. You know, we need to make sure specifically with our communications to our public that yes, police officers have made mistakes. They will continue to make mistakes. There will continue to be individual racist cops. There will continue to be individual racist departments. But as an overall with a million uniformed peace officers, we need to make sure we keep the narrative under control. And so for me, as someone who, again, who spent a lot of time on this over the last year, I'm very impressed, not only with your department, with you specifically, and obviously my old buddy, John, who I have a bias for, but you know, when we talked about this stuff as well, it was encouraging because all of these things are moving in the right direction. And all of these things are gonna be very beneficial to the community at large. And so thank you for your service and thank you for everything you've done for Santa Rosa Police Department. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks so much for the kind words and for your support and getting the word out on this podcast. But this is also exciting when you talk about sometimes you see activists and police department that are butting heads 
and they have such different polar views. But this is an example, and we worked with a local branding company to come up with our name. We looked at dozens of names and images, but even the name for us in response is so symbolic for that. Right because the in response came from our community saying, we want to see a reimagined response to those. And that really is. This team is directly, truly in response to the cries for our community from a change. And it's in response to some of the mental health crises that we have. We have the tagline there, mental health support team, because we want it to be focused on mental health, but be a supportive team. We chose the color green there because it's the mental health awareness color that we have there. And we didn't want a blue associated with police or red with fire. So we put a lot of thought into each one of those things. But I want this to be like a beacon for our community and for other community meetings or communities across the country that if you do it in the right way, where you bring your frustrations to city leaders and the county leaders and state yeah. leaders and do it, you can make change. And look what we've done here in the city of Santa Rosa by coming together, not always having to be at each other's throats, but coming together as partners, we built a system. And that in response, every time I see the van drive by or I see the logo, it reminds me of that. And I want that to be like a model for our community. What else can we do in response to? Let's look at other areas whether it be policing or other areas yeah. of government where we can come together and make significant changes. And we're hoping to get this word out there. And I think the CAHOOTS program, the Portland Street Response Team, the STAR Team in uh, Denver, these are all like model programs across the country. So look at those programs and kind of see what meets the needs of your community and be able to build it. And, and maybe you can't quite build such a robust system, but start with something at least because what we're doing now across the United States is not working. So we all have to agree it's time for some changes. And this is where we talk about that. Like, let's look where, where can we put some of those in additions to, not the subtraction. Let's exactly. put the additional funding in here. Let's get the training for our officers and let's build these teams. And I, and I think at the end of the day, it's going to be a better and safer community for all of us. Well, I think I think I would agree 100 percent. And what I could do, because, again, True 30 is about slow journalism. We we don't have any breaking news. <laughs> We're just trying to break through the clutter. And so what we could do, my guess is, is that as you start to gather data and understand that more people are calling in for the end response team and you see those numbers grow exponentially and peace officers actually doing what they were trained to do and mental health experts doing what they were trained to do, funding will come. And so two things. I hope, I wish you luck in getting the, the big job as the chief. I think obviously it's from this vantage point, you sure look like you earned it. And then maybe I'll bring you back six months to a year from now and see how things are going. And we can uh, go over the numbers specifically from today uh, to a year, year out and see what those numbers look like and the progress that you guys have made. Yeah, I would love to do that. And that's the big part of us. So we have every contact our, our in response team makes, they fill out a two-page two data collection sheet on where they're at, the level of service, the race, gender. And then what we're really trying to do, some of the important things we're doing is how many diverts did we have from our local emergency room? How many yeah. diverts did we have from the police department or the fire department responding? And then one that I'm excited to see is how many diverts from the criminal justice system do we have? <laughs> instead of getting yeah. a citation or instead of getting booked in jail, they get some of the supportive systems they need. And I think that's where it's going to be really important to be able to look at. And I think the data is going to be impressive to see what we can do. And $2.4 million is a lot of money for a full 24-7 response team. But you have to look at like, and that's when you start looking at those numbers 
of how many lives were impacted and how many hopefully reductions in jail bookings and reductions of police use of forces that we had that now they're not getting in confrontations with those in a mental health crisis. I mean, it's unmeasurable to be able to how much money you're saving and the good you're doing to your community from that level of service. So that's why I'd really like to dive deep with you as we look at some of that data. And then we're going to continue to reach that data. And we have we built like a community advisory group. So once a quarter, we're going to publicly release our data, how many people we've contacted and the demographics around our city and the locations around our city. And we're going to continue to use that as a quarterly feedback group that we can hear feedback about how can we better be serving? What improvements can we make with our team as we constantly evolve this team? And then we look toward the next year. Could we get these licensed mental health clinicians partnered with an officer going to these more crises involving violence and weapons? And that's going to be something that I'm excited to see if we can get that done in year two and then really become like one of the standards of excellence for mental health response for any law enforcement community. Because we're, we're frankly not seeing it across the country, but now's the time for some movement in this area. And I'm excited to be able to lead us into that future. No, I agree. And I think obviously if you can prove it works, then it's much easier to get funding across the country. So yes, you know, more power to you there. You also, I think we talked about, one of my journalists is going to be reaching out to you um, this week. So I'll uh, I'll send him your email and I'll introduce you guys just so you, he can talk to you a little bit more. And then we're going to publish an article um, on this as well. Perfect. So, I love to talk about it. And I'll send you that video today and a couple of more information, too. And uh, yeah, feel free to uh, share it uh, with anyone you want. Perfect. Thanks again, Captain. I appreciate it. Well, actually, Chief, <laughs> thank you again, Interim Chief. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. If you dig what we're doing over here, please subscribe. And while you're at it, please download an episode or two and leave a review. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Until next time, big hugs.